0: Welcome to Weird Studies, I'm J.F. Martel. Today we're discussing the 1974 science fiction Afrofuturist epic Space is the Place, directed by John Coney and written by Joshua Smith and Sun Ra. Sun Ra may have come last on that list, but he comes first in the order of being, as far as this film is concerned. You could easily argue that Space is a Place is Sun Ra. If you're not familiar with Sun Ra the Man or Sun Ra the Movie, don't worry. Phil and I do a pretty good job of giving you the basics early on in the episode. For now, I'll just say that in this world, Sun Ra took the form of a jazz musician and composer. But in the other world, the other world to which his music and utterances continually refer, he was an adept, maybe even an effect, of what he called the mathematics of a greater universe. Sun Ra was a modern-day Pythagoras, a genuine mystic for whom number, meter, and tone were qualities, not quantities. At the same time, he hated the very notion of a, quote, positive absolute reality, that hubristic modern conceit that the real could be known. He saw his work as an alchemical operation, an attempt to transmolecularize, his term, human consciousness, and usher in a time after time a new world that would cancel out the injustice and oppression of this one. Sun Ra was a devotee of mystery, a term which for him had only positive value. "'Change your time to the unknown factor,' he tells his audience at the end of the film. "'The unknown is immeasurable. The unknown is eternal. Wisdom will be when you say, I don't know. Your ignorance will be your salvation.'" How's that for a twist on the old saw, ignorance is bliss? Phil and I like to think of ourselves as devotees of ignorance. It seems that we grow more ignorant with each episode of Weird Studies we put out. One day, perhaps, we'll have become so ignorant that we'll be able to record nothing but a kind of dumbfound silence, 90 minutes of it, every other week. And we want you to help us get there by supporting us on Patreon and contributing directly to our devolution into the great unknowing. So you see, even if you hate our show, you now have a reason to support it. But if you happen to enjoy our show, your patronage will unlock all kinds of goodies, including bonus episodes, meaty essays, and good conversation. So check it out after you've enjoyed this episode on Sun Ra, and Space is the Place.
1: I should have known you'd pull some shit like this. Sunny Ray. Come on, what is this? What about it? You think you're ready for me? Are you ready to alter your destiny? Well, us not overdo it. Name the game. Craps. Coon can. Bids. Seven up. I say the end of the world. Well, that's what I call cooking with grease. Sonny Ray. Favorite line in that movie. Yeah. So, you know, Sun Ra's real name is Herman Blount. Yes. His childhood nickname was Sonny. So,
0: let's, let's start by telling people who he was, just in case. Sun Ra was a musician.
1: There we go. <laughs> a jazz musician. He's the far out spaceman jazz musician with a large orchestra that he lived with in a house in Philadelphia. Right. And uh, he became big in the 60s as psychedelia was kind of reaching its crest. It carried Sun Ra along with it. Sun Ra ended up being in a lot of kind of countercultural context without himself being at all countercultural. We can get to that later. The guy was sort of a monk, a monkish sort of person and led what really was a kind of a music monastery. The orchestra that he led for years, the orchestra was really almost a kind of a holy order of musicians. And that's a, that's a whole other thing. But, uh, but I feel like I'm telling the story all out of order. I'm going to start at the beginning. Herman Blount, African-American musician, pianist, born in Alabama, but early on appears to have had some kind of spiritual awakening. He described it in terms of a kind of alien abduction. Um,
0: Uh, which, you know, there's some debate as to when it happened. He says it happened in the 30s. Some researchers, from what I read, said that it couldn't have happened before 1952. But the point is that he said that he was taken up to Saturn in a spaceship, or he's taken up into space and um, given instructions by inhabitants of Saturn, who then uh, brought him back to Earth and sent him on his mission. And he he worked towards accomplishing this mission his entire life. He, he was really consistent with his teaching and his story and what he was all about. And this went on for decades, and he died in 1992. And uh, during that time in his musical career, because for him, music was a kind of alchemical instrument of transformation, uh, uh, an instrument to transform the cosmos, literally. In the course of his career, he had a massive influence on modern jazz. You know, he's, he's one of those, you know, we talk about writers, writers, like a writer that writer reads, like John Crowley, whom we both love. Yeah. He's kind of, he's described sometimes as a writer's writer, like the people who love, dig him are usually writers. It sucks for John yeah. Crowley. But
1: <laughs> that, mean, um, that means his novels don't sell very well, yeah. unfortunately.
0: <laughs> so Sunra's a bit like that from, in my experience, the people I know who really dig Sun Ra and who've introduced me to Sunra are all musicians. Um you know, he is um, and, a
1: musician's musician.
0: Yeah, and uh, his music is complex and
1: layered, interesting, wacky, like kind of surreal. It is uh, complex not only in the sense that sometimes there's a lot going on at once. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes it's very simple in terms of like just right. the amount of stuff going on. But it's super complex in terms of just the number of different kinds of things that you might expect to find in any given Sun yeah. Ra album.
0: yeah and the various traditions he's drawing from right yeah. like he'll have yeah. like a ragtime section and then it'll be totally crazy improvisational Freeform, stuff, free form yeah. free form and then it'll change to almost something almost classical
1: or yeah or, yeah. Um, uh, or you know, disco amb-
0: or yeah right no seriously there's some
1: shit where he did like some disco type stuff like he he will throw in anything right uh there's a great documentary called brother from another planet that throws in detail actually i didn't know which is that he was originally classically trained and i think if you listen to his piano playing there are a couple of recordings of him playing solo improvisations you know dude sounds like he's listened to a lot of Debussy and Scriabin, sounds like a lot like Scriabin, like clearly had- Or Satie
0: big... too. Sometimes. Or sati, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. He, he yeah. had big, big ears. It comes out as piano playing, but it really comes out in the music that he made with the orchestra, the band that he worked with from the fifties to the end of his life. And note that he called it orchestra, you know, referring yeah. to
0: Noah's Ark kind of thing, not the orchestra,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also in a typical, he, he was he loved wordplay and puns. In fact, derived a lot of esoteric significance from homonyms and so on. He also liked to say, well, this is how black people say orchestra, orchestra. Right. But it's also the arc. And so like he's always sort of punning or signifying on multiple meanings. Yeah. He had
0: it's, a powerful mm, intellect for sure. He was so eloquent. Very. Um, yeah. Well read in the occult. Um, When he was young, he would go to the Black Masonic Lodge in his hometown and read up tons of occult books that they had there in the library. You can see his fluency in the occult in his talks, but also in the film we're
1: going to be discussing. Oh, yeah. So for most of his career, Ra lived in this house in Philadelphia with the band and was sort of like very rooted in the, the East Coast. But there was a period, late 60s, early 70s, where he was out on the West Coast. And part of that sojourn was the film that we're going to discuss, Space is a Place. But shortly before he made that film, he had been contracted to give a series of lectures, like a course at UCAL Berkeley. Mm. And it's famous because it was like so pointedly, purposefully, um, I don't want to say alienating, but, you know, something, something that... Ross Musicians said about him is that he would often in his shows just hit the audience with a full-on assault of sound and light and projections and just really try to do it up at the beginning. So the people who weren't digging his scene would just leave, would be like, oh, you know, this is too crazy for me. And then he's like, okay, well, the people who are left, I can do something with. Those, Those people have intuition. And he did something similar with this Berkeley series where He required like an enormous, a ridiculous amount of reading per week, something like a thousand pages per week. And the reading list was all these esoteric books, many of them either privately published, unpublished, never published. Some of them appear to be titles that he invented in his own head (laughs) Uh, and a great many of them just like extremely difficult to find esoteric Text that he like had, they're
0: only in manuscript somewhere in London, kind of thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, or stuff that he had collected and he had personal copies. Remember, this is before. I mean, now anybody who has an interest in the occult can instantly equip themselves with an extraordinary library of esoterica, the like of which would have been almost inconceivable for anybody. I don't think uh, you in could, 1972. In you know? 1972,
0: I don't think if you wanted the Book of Honorius or the uh, the Abramelin, I don't think you could. Get it really, unless or maybe, even some,
1: or even something as uh um, now mainstream is like you know Crowley's Book of Thought or something like that. Even right. that would be hard to get a hold of. You'd have to have a wiser catalog right away to the wiser uh, esoteric publishing house. And I don't see even if know if Wiser was publishing copy. Crowley yet. Yeah, no, that's a point. It might I have been know. just
0: the the Thelema Society or whatever at that point. Yeah. Who knows? the The point is that yeah, he
1: was he was making. Uh, unreasonable demands. <laughs> <laughs> he would go in on the lectures and he would start writing words down on the blackboard. And, and this is a sort of punning, multi-level, um, kind of lexical imagination of his. He would sort of like erasing letters and be pointing out that there are like occult connections between different words. Or if you transpose letters here, then this word turns into this word. And People are sort of mystified by this but you know there were always a few people who were going to hang out and try and like glean something and this was sort of almost his method. He would not try to sugarcoat it. He had a vision and he would realize that vision as intensely as possible and sometimes even very purposefully intensely to kind of weed out the normies. And then the I think the idea was often like you just kind of have to hang on for the ride and see if you get anywhere. Right. And that certainly has happened with me with Sun Ra. I've taken a bunch of stabs at Sun Ra. And early on, I remember like getting a copy of the heliocentric worlds of Sun Ra volume one and listening to it. And it's just a whole slab of aggro squonk and just being like, shit, man, this is not my, this is not my thing. But then, you know, coming back to it, it's funny. There's a, Sun Ra leaves a little itch in the brain You know, like I got to scratch it. I got to go back and listen to something else. And maybe I get a little bit more out of it this time and then maybe a little bit more. Actually, I had a big turning point with Sun Ra a few years ago when I was reading a passage of Deleuze and Guattari from A Thousand Plateaus uh forget which passage, but it was something that I had assigned for a class. And then I took a walk and I was listening to the soundtrack to Space is the Place, which you know, the film that we're talking about today. And I kind of almost felt like a realignment in my head, like there's a connection between these two things, between what Deleuze and Guattari are doing, what Sun Ra's doing. And it has something and it has something to do with planes. Right. Planes of consistency. You know how in the Deleuze-Guattarian universe, they have these very abstract ideas about how reality is constituted in uh strata, right. These sort of planes that abut one another and are subsets of one another and that have interfaces that are productive of certain things and it's all very abstract. And you know, you can read a lot of Deleuze and Quartar and be like, I have no fucking idea what these guys are talking about. Yeah. And you can listen to a lot of a lot of sunra and have exactly the same feeling. But if you it's almost like a like the trick that you do when you're looking at a magic eye Painting or something where you have to kind of defocus your eyes. You actually have to kind of relax a little bit to see the image. Yeah. You know, with Deleuze and Couture, I always find, like, if you were really getting bogged down in the meaning of, like, well, what did they mean by this word and then this word? And how do I make this sentence come out rationally? You're just going to get stuck. And it's not gonna make any sense. You have to kind of skip along the tops of the words. You have to kind of get the music of the words. And you have to kind of defocus your mind a little bit and allow yourself to kind of enter a different mode of perception where you're just kind of grooving on their planes. Uh, and it's the same thing with Sun Ra. Once you, you know, if you just kind of relax your mind a little bit and say, like, okay, what are the textures? What are the shapes that are being painted in right, sound? Right. You know, what are the different layers and lines that are butting up against one another? If you just treat the musical texture almost as an environment that you can inhabit, almost like a landscape that you can walk around in, all of a sudden it becomes just a bejeweled, dazzling, uh, spectacularly and uncannily beautiful place.
0: Yeah, I agreed, absolutely. Yeah, very well said. And, um, you know... It's a little bit like if you're trying to learn a new language, let's say you're trying to learn Mandarin. So you're listening to people speak Mandarin and you're trying to, you're listening for the the sounds because you're an idiot. You're listening for the sounds that sound English-y. And then you're like, oh, I heard ship. Okay. Okay. They're talking about (laughs) a ship. It's like, no, you have to just completely forget English and just let... This new language come at you and observe, yeah. and then you'll notice oh they, when they say this they're doing that, and when they say you know you kind of have to learn this new language and that's precisely what the you brought up planes in dedos and Guatari and I think it's really apt uh, because the plane invents a new language right when, when, when a plane is drawn a new plane of consistency, for example, in a work of art uh, just like Sunra. And like in Sun Ra's case, like you create a new work of art, it uh, has its own plane of consistency, if it's good, and it doesn't exist on some other plane of consistency. So in order to understand the work of art, you, you need to all the baggage you have already going in. But the point is to find its own geography, its singular geography, and to find its own code, its own way of looking at the world. And there are as many... I mean, in Deleuze and Guattari, the world, what we call the world is actually a multiplicity of worlds. And it's not only that, but the crux of reality in their philosophy, and again, I think this relates so pointedly to the film we're discussing and to Sun Ra's music in general, the crux of reality isn't a particular place or a particular um, set of axioms or set of laws the crux of reality is the act of world creation itself. So if you could define the world in Deluso-Guattarian uh language, you would say the world is world making. That's what the world is. So like when you're creating something new, um, let's say a, a piece of music, you're drawing a new plane on the chaos. You're creating a new way of looking at the world. And there, therefore it always comes to you as a foreign language, you know, Tedes and Guattari were big on the idea of minor art, you know, of, of creating art that doesn't um, resonate only uh, at the level of what they call the, uh, the molar, the kind of uh, agreed-upon, doxa, kind of opinion-driven assumptions of the... But that creates a minority, that creates a minor language. And they, they, they termed it as, and again, this connects us right back to Sanra. Ra, they said that the great artist is always creating art for a people to come. The people are missing. You're creating a new people. And in Sun Ra, he really is trying to like, create a new community, uh, almost a new state, a new nation that would exist on the plane that his music instigates and creates.
1: Yeah. And he yeah. meant that literally. literally in a way that is difficult to convey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, somewhere he says, he might say it in space as a place, I'm not sure. He says, people have no music that is in coordination with their spirits. Yeah. He does say that. Yeah. 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 And then he continues, because of this, they're out of tune with the universe. And that's an interesting statement to me, because it suggests that to be in tune with the universe is to be in tune with the right music. And therefore, right music equals the universe. That the universe has a music, or we might more properly say that the universe is a music. The cosmos is a music. And maybe it's a whole bunch of different musics. You know, Ra was always talking about other worlds, not some singular other world, but he was constantly saying there are other worlds. And he's always trying to get people to imagine those other worlds. But it's not just that he's trying to paint them in some exotic way, although sometimes he kind of is. But it's that he's trying to instantiate those other worlds. He's trying to make those other worlds real right. in the here and now through music. And the idea that through music, you can catch a vibration, a harmony that aligns with some larger cosmic reality. And if you as a human being align yourself with that music, you are thereby aligning yourself with the cosmos. And so in this manner, you can space travel without ever leaving the physical material earth. Right. Which is an ancient idea. I
0: mean, Pythagoras was all about that, right?
1: Or for that matter, shamanism, the idea that, you know, the, shaman, yeah. Yeah, the shaman's drum is the roadway out of the mundane world and into the kind of, uh, you know, that shamanistic imaginal. Right. right? Absolutely. You know, the, the other world. Yeah. So he's trying to do something that is uh, hallowed by ancient example. He is, to me, maybe the most important American-born figure in the history of Western esotericism, which I realize is a big claim. But who's bigger? Right, And who falls more beautifully into even the most sort of classical and canonic sort of definitions of the esoteric? I was thinking about the the French scholar, Anton Fevre, who more or less invented the field of esoteric studies. Right. And he has, a, perhaps it's a very classically French and tidy and rationalistic approach to defining the esoteric, but it works in the majority of cases. Um, he comes up with what he calls like four dimensions of the esoteric. Things or we might say attributes, things that makes... Western esotericism, what it is. And number one, it's the idea of universal correspondences. Um, for instance, the doctrine of signatures that Foucault writes about a lot in, um, oh, I forget which book it is. That he, Words, he does and, that. Uh, Les mots, les choses, The Order
0: yeah. of Things, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So universal correspondence is the idea that perhaps this mineral has a correspondence with this flower that has a correspondence with, with this note that has a correspondence with this angel. That kind of thing, you know, Kabbalah, both the Christian and Jewish varieties of Kabbalah are full of correspondences. That's just an example. Almost every, you know, esoteric system has its system of correspondences. Um, and Ra as well, you know, his fascination with this correspondence theory of music, um, that uh, the right kind of music can vibrate at a frequency that we ourselves can vibrate at, and therefore we can vibrate in sympathy with cosmos. But that Mm -hmm. also relates to another of Favre's categories, the role of mediations, the idea that, you know, for instance, in a, a cult ceremony, say you're doing some bit of goetic magic, instead of applying to top authority, whether that be God or the devil, you apply to one of the ministers, one of the yeah. subordinates. The intercessors. And so, yeah. 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 So you appeal to this demon or, or that angel. So the idea of intercession, and it can be not just entities, angels and demons, but it can be tools like scrying stones or tarot cards to reach what Favre calls active imagination. Um, this also seems to be important in Ra's approach, but everything is put in musical terms in Ra's practice, right? Uh, Another of fabulous categories is the experience of transmutation. You know, if you really enter wholeheartedly into an idea of universal correspondences, uh, which itself you know, indicate sort of an idea of living nature. If you really enter wholeheartedly into mediations as a means to achieve the imaginal, then the outcome of this is a kind of transmutation. Or as uh, Sunrock calls it, transmolecularization. It's a term that he throws around in the film, and it almost sounds like he's just making up some mumbo-jumbo to sound mystical. But actually, transmolecularization was the way that he described his mystical experience, where he was taken to Saturn and taught certain things. It wasn't as if he was, like, put in a, I don't know, cosmic tin can and, you know, physically flown there, but that he was reassembled molecule by molecule, Mm. you know that is a kind of a, you know, sort of like the Star Trek thing. What, what do they call that in Star Trek? The, 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 when they beam people down. I don't remember what they call that.
0: it. I'm not a big Star Trek fan, but I know the no, term. I can't mm. remember it now. Too bad.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Um, but uh, in any event, and this is a very typically Sun Ra thing that on the one hand, he is working with tropes uh, that go back to the very, earliest strata of Western esotericism, that kind of uh, Hellenic slash Egyptian stratum of of, um, hermeticism. Uh, And certainly Ra played with especially Egyptian imagery his entire career. We'll get to that, yeah. But then at the same time, he also expresses these things in like kind of pop, pulp, sci-fi ways in a way that we might associate with someone like Philip K. Dick, You know, using sci-fi tropes to get at, for instance, something very profound in the Western esoteric tradition, the experience of transmutation, a kind of uh, initiation where your body and soul are transmuted into something else alchemically. You know, you say, well, what was Sun Ra about? In a nutshell, he was about creating that experience for Mm -hmm. his listeners, that he had been initiated in whatever manner. And he wanted to use his music to create that experience for his listeners, which is why I say, you know, you can kind of almost think of his band living together in that house in Philadelphia as a kind of a, a, as a monastic order of music, because they were engaged in a fundamentally holy activity. You know, they were, they were saving souls with music.
0: Yeah, that's how they saw it. And you're right that he's a major figure In modern esotericism, because, I mean, the history of Western esotericism, the modern part of it, is full of armchair magicians, right? Edipas Levi did one ritual, and it freaked him out so bad he never did another one. Is that Uh, true? I didn't know that. Uh, Most of these guys were like more. Interested in theory than practice. There are very few examples of modern magicians who are first and foremost practicing magicians who do their thing, like and you know, Crowley is one, and and Sun Ra is certainly one as well. Yeah. um I would argue that many uh, of the musicians of the the counterculture musicians of the sixties and seventies were actually magicians, but not many of them knew what they were doing. And Sun Ra is one of those who who did. Um, he knew also what he was fighting. He was fighting a system of domination that he he knew used the same tools he was using. He knew that the music industry and the advertising industry and the the whole American the culture kind of machine, industry, as culture would yeah, say, the culture industry in general. Um, supported by the military-industrial complex and everything, was a kind of uh, um, a kind of archon, the Gnostic sense. A kind of it was yeah. it was the it was manipulated and controlled by esoteric forces, by alien forces that he thought he had to fight. In a sense, his beliefs couldn't. I mean, I've known a few people who suffered from severe bipolar disorder, and would when they get manic, they become messianic, right? And the way, the language they use and the way they talk about things and the, the the definite way in which they put things in bizarre new categories. And it's, I mean, when you listen to Sun Ra, it, it sounds like that. But the point is that Sun Ra had such consistency that it's hard for me to believe that he... I don't think that it's the question of whether he actually believed what he was saying or not is all that important. I think that he was doing something very specific. He was performing what in magic we call an operation, right? Yeah. Working his, he was trying to achieve a very specific goal, uh, which was to create this new, this new world. And so, yeah, he's like one of the true practicing magicians. In Dungeons and Dragons, there's a class called the Bard, And the bard is a magic-using class, but the bard uses magic to produce music. So the bard, obviously, the bard is a figure from Celtic myth and Celtic history. So there's a sense in which music is innately magical. But one must come to know this, realize it, and then realizes the potential of what they've been doing all along. And I think Sun Ra at some point realized that music could really alter consciousness, and it really can, and therefore kind of invented this persona Um, And his whole kind of mythical system, his whole kind of esoteric system is a way of augmenting the power of that process, which is intrinsic to music itself. So like he was a bard, you know, he was a 20th 20th level neutral good bard for sure. (laughs) Just to get more specific, the material that we uh, consumed before recording this episode was uh, Sun Ra's only film,
1: Space is the Place. I don't think he was involved in any other cinematic well, there's, works. Uh, there's, um, there's another film called A Joyful Noise, which is a concert.
0: Okay. Concert a lot film. of
1: concert a lot of concert footage. No, no, I I've never can seen. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a couple of films that he shows up in. Actually, there's a weird early film called The Cry of Jazz, um, half-hour-long documentary about jazz that a very young version of the orchestra shows up in very briefly. But yeah, but but this is the only... I'm sorry, I'm being pedantic. This is the only narrative film that right. he was in. Right, the only narrative film that he was involved in. Um,
0: he didn't write it, didn't direct it, but I have a feeling that he was pretty much really instrumental in, in in its execution and the way it was made it's it's a, it's essentially a b movie so if you watch it if you haven't seen it uh don't expect uh 2001. it's <laughs> like it's done on a certainly done on a budget but it's it's fantastic and partly because of that um mm-hmm. the limitations they were facing forced them to find really innovative ways of expressing the ideas that the film intended to express and the story—it's basically Sun Ra plays himself. He plays himself as uh, this Saturnian figure who comes to Earth after a prolonged absence to save the black community, and also it's less important, as things, as we as it turns out, uh, to save planet Earth. So he's coming to bring his message. So he's coming as a kind of messianic, mystical figure, and the the film exp- has kind of two. Plots to narrative kind of uh, threads. The first one is an ongoing card game that Raw plays against a, d- a kind of devil figure.
1: I forget it's called name. the Overseer. The
0: Overseer in the film. So he's
1: wearing a, a white suit, yeah, and like a gold-headed cane, and he totally has that kind of street player, yes, yeah, street player, kind of. maybe
0: a pimp, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're playing this card game, and the over the fate of the earth, and. At the same time, Sun Ra's trying to get his message through and trying to um, realize his vision on Earth, and the Overseer is constantly trying to, like, foil him. And that's the other thing. The other thread that I was going to mention is the, the weird tension between Sun Ra and the community that he wants to save, you know, the Black community. And you can see in this... Play of forces, Sun Ra's own political ideas about what should be done about the problem of race in America, and it's really interesting on that account because his ideas are different. So, so that's basically the movie. The film opens with a scene on another planet, and you see Sun Ra wearing a pharaoh getup. He looks like an Egyptian pharaoh. Uh, he's followed by a robed figure with a mirror for a face, and he's talking about. This planet he's discovered, and he thinks it's the planet that the black community should
1: transmolecularize, yeah, to.
0: transmolecularize or, uh, in an isotropic way, uh, too. You know, they should get <laughs> there and they should start a new world. So, there's this idea of creating a new nation, a new place that's outside of time. Very specifically, the first lines of the film, which are sung by his uh, the singer, do you know her name? June Tyson. Jin Tyson is singing the line, it's after the end of the world. Don't you know that? I love that. She keeps singing that over and over again. And then you see Sun Ra on this bizarre, exotic planet. And Sun Ra says, the first thing to do is to consider time as officially ended. We'll work on the other side of time. And I thought that was really poignant because it tells us something about... What this film is trying to do and and the, the creation of a new state, the creation of a new nation, the creation of a new kingdom on the periphery because he goes into outer space, finds this peripheral planet, and tries to build a new center there. It reminded me a lot of the writings of Mercia Eliade, and his ideas about the foundation of the city, and the creation of a new time, and all that. So maybe we can kind of dig into that. But that's basically the film. At the end, he essentially seems to lose, but Christ-like ends up winning, in a sense. The earth is destroyed, but he beams up in a kind of rapture moment all the people that he's chosen are beamed up with him into a spaceship and they uh they fly off they go
1: to that planet they go to that planet and start a new world yeah that opening scene in that strange new world was shot in golden gate park I knew it. I recognized it. (laughs) Well, you know, I I recognize it because my first job out of graduate school, my kids were just tiny at that point. I I was working in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we would travel up to the Golden Gate Park on weekends just to have something to do and and spent countless hours wandering through Golden Gate Park. And it's so lush. So beautiful. I mean, that area, it's a temperate rainforest, really. Yeah. And so it's just like lush. They also created some pretty cool props. You know, this is a great example of that B-movie creativity. They only had so much money, and so they were creating these uh, odd, rubbery-looking little props and then kind of interspersing them in the exuberant, overabundant greenery of Golden Gate Park so that it actually does make... The park looked a little alien, right? as if we're on this lush alien world. It's actually, given that the effects probably cost 99 cents, it's amazingly effective.
0: Right. No, absolutely. It does look uh, quite otherworldly. And uh, isn't there a nice a little pagoda and a Japanese garden in, somewhere? There in is. Gage? Yeah, I went there. It was nice. I had, um, what do you call that? Strong, creamy tea they make in Japan. Matcha? Oh, okay. Great. Anyways, yeah. So that's where they sought that scene. That's interesting. And yeah, so
1: where do we start breaking this down and talking about it? Actually, one thing I want to do. Okay. So, as JF's already mentioned, this movie has two narrative tracks. The one that takes place on Earth is Sun Ra and his orchestra shows up in Oakland circa 1972, and they're trying to get a concert going. And, you know, the local media are on them and uh, they find themselves at the center of a lot of media bullshit, which you get the feeling is is a sort of satirical rendering of stuff that actually happened to Sun Ra in real life. You know, she tries to get youth at the local youth center, Um, to be interested in his music and encounters a lot of skepticism and suspicion. The word of the concert gets out to people in the streets of Oakland and various people find their way to the concert by various means. There are a couple of little tiny subplots that for the most part don't really amount to much, except they play into the ending, which is like various people who Sun Ra is going to rapture up to this new planet. There's a subplot of like the CIA is following Ra because FBI, they think he, yeah, or the FBI, yeah, that he has developed some secret of space flight that they don't know anything about and they got to learn about it. i We'll get back to that. I have a. Yeah. I found this crazy connection,
0: but okay. We'll, they we'll they briefly ki- your, yeah.
1: kidnap him and torture him by playing Dixie. To him, like over headphones. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a couple actually very funny sort of satirical moments in this film. There's a lot of funny moments in the film, yeah. Yeah. And the overseer, just as Ra has two forms, there's the supernal form, his uh, the form of him that is playing cards with the overseer and this like higher plane. Uh, likewise, the Overseer is on that higher plane, but also down here on Earth, thwarting Sun Ra and telling people on the streets that he's full of shit and they shouldn't go to his concert, you know, stuff like that. And there's a sort of side plot of the Overseer and this media guy named Jimmy Faye, who is a figure of a uh, black sellout, you know, yeah. a black guy who's sold out to the white establishment. There's sort of a side plot with some naughty business with strippers, which apparently that was not Sun Ra's idea. And apparently he was pissed that that ended up in the movie because he was actually rather puritanical. He wouldn't allow his musicians to do drugs. and But in any event, a lot of the plot down here on Earth is pretty loosely wrapped. It's a little bit of a miscellany. Um, the point of it is that it, it culminates in a concert that Sunra does in fact manage to pull off a concert and in so doing manages to affect the destiny of the planet. But the supernal realm where R- R- Sunra and the Overseer play cards, I want to talk about that a little bit because it's a little bit like that movie, The Seventh Seal, which I've never seen. I should uh, say that up front. But there's a chess game that gets played between this knight returning f- home from the wars, I believe. Crusades, yeah. Yeah, he plays a chess game with death. With death, yeah. I guess he loses, right? I mean, surely you're going to lose a chess game with death. Um, I don't recall. <laughs> I yeah, did I see know. it
0: a long time ago, but
1: played, I have remember two scenes. And I don't know if there's a a purposeful connection between that film and the later film space is a place. It's an obvious reference to it. There's a sense of like, okay, we're going to play a game with tarot cards and the cards we pull are going to affect things down on earth. And so when they start playing cards, the overseer pulls the world, or in some decks, it's the universe, Le Monde in the Marseille tarot. Uh, so he pulls the world and he pulls the chariot. Right. And then Ra pulls one card, Judgment. And it's not the characteristic Marseille tarot card. It's actually a card that has a picture of the spaceship that Ra and his musicians arrive in, which is this spaceship that from the side kind of looks like a dildo, if I'm being real. Right. But from head on is two blazing eyes. Yeah. It's just this... Streamlined form that really just looks like two blazing eyes. And if you look at the Marseille deck judgment card, you see an angel up top. Blowing a trumpet, which is the only musical instrument that appears in the tarot deck, by the way. Mm -hmm. And you see the angel's eyes bulging, like big eyes staring out of the card with like great intensity. And so there's clearly a connection, right? Yeah.
0: And below the angel, you see uh, the dead rising as the angel blows his trumpet. The juxtaposition of this idea of a spaceship and the angel on the Marseille card reminded me of that passage from Book of Revelation. The third angel sounded his trumpet. The third card, third angel. And a a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters Hmm. turned bitter and many people died from the waters that have become bitter. As it turns out, The spaceship coming to Earth um, is a harbinger of the imminent destruction of the Earth. Basically, you get the sense that Sun Ross trying kind of to save the Earth, but knows ahead of time that he's going to lose that battle, that the Mm -hmm. Earth is doomed. So I thought it was an interesting uh, connection. The idea of Wormwood from the Book of Revelation, which is, of course, the book of the judgment, the final judgment of the star coming to Earth when an angel sounds a trumpet, annihilating the work of... The demiurge, in this case, of the overseer. Because I think yeah. what, what, what's implied, I think, my interpretation is that the overseer is not the devil. The overseer is the demiurge, the Gnostic god, the guy who owns the earth made yep. the earth yep. and he shows the, the world card says i have the world and the chariot means i have the the power to to control the world that's right and manifested in his kind of cadillac that he ends up driving around after that because on his that's chariot right. card there's a picture of a car as opposed to a, a horse-drawn chariot and then mm-hmm. of course says well yeah you have the chariot and the world but i have judgment i'm coming from outside to judge yeah. and to
1: end your uh, your creation and, you know, this is a film of rifts. It was one of my favorite J.F. Martel concepts is the concept of the rift. And every time we get the band playing, it's a little rift. You know, you're, yeah. Oh, yeah. you're in the world of a, a cheesy B-movie, like blaxploitation slash sci-fi quickie. And then you fall through a wormhole every time you hear the orchestra beginning to play the swirling vortices of sonic energy that seem, I mean, you know, what Rob was trying to do was to actually open up real wormholes, energetic tears in the fabric of reality that we could escape into. That's what he was actually trying to do. And you want to know something? I think he's actually doing it. Yeah. And if you can just kind of prep yourself and get yourself in the right mind state, when you watch this film, you can fall into those rifts that he tears open into the surface of the film. That's a great... Great point, yeah. And one of those riffs occurs right as he flashes the card where the diegetic sound, the sound of Iran, and the Overseer are in this big sort of desert basin and you hear atmospheric sounds. You hear the sounds of their conversation in their card game and all of that just fades down. And what fades up is uh, polyphonic drumming. I was listening to it last night, and it was blowing my fucking mind. Because like, you know, it starts off and it just sounds like some kind of stochastic chaos, uh, with so many like d- levels of drums, all these drums playing at the same time, and it starts stratifying into different levels. They're sort of weirdly synchronized. They're not locked in, but they're not random. They're not out of sync either and the points of synchrony lock up and then they drift apart and it's just it's fucking wild you know yeah. it's psych- it's psychedelic music and it's a long percussion lead up to a kind of a almost a fanfare you know it's it's quite a mistake to think that raw's music is always just free jazz squonk sometimes it ends up sounding like something that uh you know fletcher henderson or duke ellington Mm -hmm. would have written for their bands. But then it's just this incredible stylistic variety where you can start in one part of the musical universe and end up in a totally different part. Anyway, whatever. I'm sort of getting in deep. But what's cool about that moment where Ra flashes the card, the look on the overseer's face, because it's just like this look of like, well, I guess you got me. Right. It's the first time you see the overseer looking genuinely concerned. Like, oh shit. Yeah, I got the world and I got the chariot, but shit, he has judgment. And, you know, getting back to that card, the judgment card of the tarot, the dead are leaping out of their graves. That's what we see in the bottom half of that card, right? But, you know, what you see is an angel of judgment playing a musical instrument and people are being drawn to that sound and drawn upward. And, you know, Ra's view of the world is fundamentally agnostic. I think you're absolutely right. I think that the, the overseer is the demiurge. And I think that Ra had a kind of, a, you know, an implacable hatred of the world. Every time he talked about it, he never talked in uh, fond terms about the world. For him, the world was an irremediably fucked up place. Yeah. And so his idea is like, it's a really Gnostic idea that matter is a fallen condition and we have to rise above the level of the material of, of the earthly. And so, you know, this whole thing of the idea of like getting people off the planet into this new planet is a kind of a allegorization of that basically Gnostic pattern. There's something very Gnostic about that judgment card. You know, you could say, okay, it's people being freed from their graves and blah, blah, blah. But you can also think of it as something that happens right here and now, not at the end of time, but it's happening every moment. That it is always possible that you will be able to hear the trumpet of the angel and rise up out of your earthly, fleshy, material condition to a higher plane. There's little wonder that that is the card of Sun Ra.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And um, maybe it moves us to discuss um, Gnosticism a bit, because traditional Gnosticism, the way Gnosticism, I know things have gotten a lot more nuanced now, but some of the major schools of Gnosticism, what's called Gnosticism, were really founded upon a moral judgment of creation, right? The idea of the Gnostic is that this world is not as good as it could be. Therefore, this world cannot be work of God. So judgment is um, immanentized in Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the process by which you, as a Gnostic, give yourself authority to judge. And so in many Gnostic texts, the people who haven't yet attained Gnosis are often described as being dead. There's one Gnostic, I don't remember which one, the Gospel of Mary? I'm not sure. I can't remember. uh, Where um, Christ... The Gnostic Christ tells his disciples, I can't remember, I will liberate you from the authority of death or something like that. That death is kind of Yaldabaoth, de the Demiurge. Death is this world. We live in death. And so uh, the, the imagery of, of the final judgment where death is canceled and we gain a new life is kind of immanentized into history in Gnosticism. Whereas Orthodox Christianity and Judaism tends to push the judgment outside of history, the Gnostic brings it into history, says this world is death already, and we must be reborn through Gnosis. So there's a scene in the film where Sun Ra enters a kind of chamber, and there's a dead pharaoh in a tomb, and he raises the dead pharaoh from the dead, um, and the dead pharaoh stands up um, and, and, smi- and smiles. And smiles. It's actually a rather beautiful right. little
1: moment. Yeah. Right.
0: And and that kind of um, brings us back to the original Marseille tarot card of judgment, which just says like waking up, waking up from this dead state that we're in. I've listened to one talk by Sun Ra last night, where he's saying that most people who've lived on this earth and most people living now have never had an original thought in their heads. All they do is recycle thoughts that they've taken from all elsewhere, those thoughts kind of shape their world. And they don't belong to them. The goal for Nisan Ra is to generate your own thought, just like you generate your own music. You don't just follow some pre-established algorithm that you've been taught in school or in a Juilliard's or wherever. You, you, you have to create your new law. You have to draw your own plane. And if you haven't done that, in essence, in his mystical vision, you are already dead. You know, at the first line of the film again is it's after the end of the world. Don't you see that? The end of the world has already come. And that's an idea that for me resonates very, very deeply for different reasons, because I like to write about how the world ended in 1945. And we've discussed this on the show. And And I think that there truly is something about the post-war world in which all this music came to fruition uh, along with the rest of the counterculture. There's a sense in which we live after history in a way. And uh, I think that Sun Ra is trying to capitalize on that, saying that there's an opportunity now. We can see that the world's already over and we can create something new. And that makes them even more of a Gnostic. In fact, I think the closest analogy to the way you describe the orchestra and how they lived, the closest analogy I can think of to that are those ancient Gnostic sects back in the in late antiquity, like the the, the sect of uh, Valentinus or Basilides. These were like small communities ensconced within the Roman Empire who lived by their own rules and were had a really radical take on the meaning of the world, the meaning of empire the, and, and the, the path... That the world was going to have to take in order to to flourish, and these little communities, like really like radical like spiritual terrorist cells, and I'm using the word terrorist. Maybe I should use another word, but they were they were really kind of like anti-imperial. They were little sects that took it upon themselves to judge the entire world, you know. And uh, I think that there's something similar going on with Sun Ra and his orchestra.
1: So why don't we think about a couple more cards that come up during this game? All right, I'll, I'll do these two. You look bored. No, no, I'm not. You're like, fool. oh, fuck this shit, okay.
0: <laughs> no, no, there are two more cards. The Fool and the Two of Cups are the other two cards.
1: Uh, or the Joker, I guess.
0: Yeah, he kind of screwed up there. It was not a tarot card. It was a regular playing card. Maybe that's I important.
1: Su- I suspect that was not an accident.
0: I, I agree. You Why know. did he choose the Joker? Because he didn't want to be called a fool?
1: Um, I have my own thoughts about that. But let's say what happens as we go forward. So there's an interesting moment actually where Ra pulls a card that we don't see what it is. We don't see its suit or, you know, yeah. what Trump it is or whatever. And that again, this is a kind of B-movie effect um, where there's a chroma key cut out. The card is a chroma key cut out in the i don't know i'm probably expressing this wrongly you're yeah. the, you're the film guy well, that sounds right but uh it shows a scene taking place in a pool hall so you see this card in Ra's hand but what it is is this little scene within the scene playing out and it's a pimp who is talking to some guys playing pool with about how the girl that he pimps out was listening to some sun Ra to get her soul right and he got mad at her and beat her up and now he feels bad about that and that's why he's out hustling some pool and you really get a sense of this guy he has that tough exterior but he's actually like a damaged soul you know heroin addict has no idea what's right in this world a a lost soul and we see this little scene play out and then it cuts back to the supernal realm where the card game is playing out and the Overseer cackles at Ron. He's like, well, that's what we have to work with. Hmm. So what do you make of that?
0: Um, I don't know. I was, while you were talking, I was trying to figure out what card that scene symbolized. Yeah, well, we're never shown it. No, but I mean, maybe the card is that scene. Maybe there is a card that goes with that. A wands card. It's pool, right? Billiards. A wands Oh yeah, there card. you go. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that symbol similar. Do you have any ideas about that?
1: Hold on for a second. Okay, so um, Thoth Tarot, I can never remember. But if we are to, he wasn't using the Thoth Tarot, so it's kind of I, cheating. I know, but I'm interested in seeing what Crowley came up with for right. the attributions of the wand suit. Because, you know, I mean, like the Marseille Tarot doesn't have any attributions at all for the pips. No, it doesn't. And the Rider-Waite Tarot... Uh, Okay, so for look at the thought, I'll look at the rider weight. Okay, good. So for Crowley, the ace is the root of the powers of fire. So all of the aces are for him just like the essence of whatever the elemental power is yeah. of that suit. So the element of fire is the element that rules the suit of wands. So the ace is the, the root of that power, right? The right. kind of the symbol of that power unmanifest or before manifestation. And then from two to 10, you get dominion, virtue, completion, strife, victory, valor, swiftness, strength, oppression. And if I had to guess of those, um, I would say it would be oppression, the 10th. And I, I remember Crowley's argument there being that the power of fire in its most degenerate form, which is the form it reaches when it's in the in the 10th, which if you're thinking in terms of Kabbalah, we're working down the tree of life and the 10th sephirot is um, Malkut, the, the, the sphere of earth, right? The lowest, the cosmic dingleberry hanging off the asshole of the universe right and it, it, he says there at that point power just becomes stupid and oppressive and yeah. that seems to be a pretty good description of this guy who is uh he actually is one of the people who Raw saves at the end you see him putting down his heroin works casting off his old life and the pure part of him that was always kind of buried underneath the socialized husk of this uh the street dude um, that is the part that is raptured up to this new planet. Yeah. So you could say that, you know, what lies at his core is that Ace of Wands, right? He, he has that little burning pilot light inside of him, but that's gotten covered up and smothered uh, or perverted by the twisted life that he's had to live. But um, but yeah, so, you know, to me, I would vote for the Ten of Wands, oppression.
0: I agree. So in the writer weight tarot, you have a, a man, you see him from the back carrying 10 wands, and he, they look like they're a huge burden. So you can see someone living with the weight of systemic oppression on his shoulders. So I think that yeah. would be an apt image for describing that character's. So let's decide that that card
1: was the 10 of wands. Yeah. So what do you make of the, what the overseer says? Well, that's what we got to work with.
0: Well, I think he's referring to the state of the black community at that time um, and that we're, we're not playing a game. We're not playing this game with like the Air Force and, you know, the space program and the Russian government. We're playing on the streets of Oakland, California.
1: We're playing in yeah. this little world. I think he's referring to that, but I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. I think that's totally a, a strong reading. I also think that you can kind of think of it a little bit more abstractly as well, which is just sort of like, okay, so in a raw... In his cosmic form, in his supernal form, is playing a game and he is wagering on humanity. Yeah. You know, he, it, like Ra has his problems with the earth, but it's the earth. It's not human beings necessarily. For him, human beings are for the most part deluded and well, fucked up. In this way, and he's occluded. He's, he's, he's a Gnostic in that way. The, the yeah, human, exactly. The reason
0: humans are, are special or exceptional in the Gnostic mythos is that humans contain within themselves a spark of the divine. Either it was Sophia, the feminine aspect of the true God that descended through the archon guarded spheres to bestow upon humanity, this spark of the original pleroma of the true God. Or it's Christ who descended and did that. But in the Gnostic mythos, humans are the kind of fulcrum or the pivot point on which the fate of the entire universe resides. And so, and, and Ross shares that vision of humanity for sure. Yeah.
1: And that is a, and more abstractly, that is a schema of the human that is very fundamental to a lot of Hermeticism. That you can kind of imagine three overlapping circles each circle overlapping the other. Imagine a circle, and then imagine a circle drawn halfway above that circle, overlapping that circle, and then imagine another circle on top of that one overlapping the second circle. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? That schema is like a really powerful image of a kind of traditional hermetic idea of the human, that the human is the middle circle that we overlap with the earth. The earth is the bottom circle. And then spirit... Is the top circle. Actually, you can also think of that middle circle as soul. Yeah, the the middle circle
0: would be soul. And the tripartite kind of constitution of the human in Gnostic um, mythology or in the Gnostic um, system is often in three parts. So the human is highly, psyche, and pneuma, right? Mm -hmm. Highly is the flesh, matter. Psyche is soul, the middle. And pneuma is pure spirit, uh, the top. Yep. So, so the, the 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 tripartite division of the of the cosmos is repeated or reflected in each human. Yeah. Um, precisely because humans uh, kind of bridge uh, the three worlds. Yeah. Humans within themselves contain all three, so we have spirit, soul, and a body.
1: Right. And uh, you want to you know slough off the gross matter and purify your way up to the sort of higher level. Right. But- I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on um, Gnosticism because I surely am not. I wonder if there's any unanimity on that point. There probably isn't. I'm guessing that relationship to the earth, however generally hostile it's going to be, is necessarily going to be kind of variable because like, even if you're sort of saying like, okay, we need to transcend the earthly condition, purify ourselves and ascend. Nevertheless, you have to work... With the earthly. You That's can't just what we be have like, to work with. Yeah, That's what we have to work with. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. And Rod doesn't look happy about it. And the overseer looks pretty damn smug at that point. Because, you know, win one for the overseer. Because, like, as they say, you got to give the devil his due. Right, right. Even within a Gnostic framework in which you're trying to purify and move upward out of a gross material condition. Nevertheless, this is what we have to work with. This is our trash stratum thing, right? You have to find the divine even in the lowest stratum of human society.
0: And of course, that was the great objection that uh, Plotinus and the Neoplatonists uh, made about Gnosticism, and also the objection of the early church fathers, like Tertullian, who wrote a lot about the Gnostics. What they reproached the Gnostics with was a rejection of this world. They have nothing to work with. This is more or less clear in Plotinus, that the Gnostics refuse to see the beauty of this world, and therefore the spirit they believe in is actually an overly rarefied non, non-being, that they are actually worshippers of the nothing. For Plotinus, who is a, a classical thinker in the sense that he believed in the, the value of Plato and, and his um, successors, is that this world in itself is kind of holy. And that's something that Christianity imported from the Greeks, That this world, this this creation is somehow an expression of the highest, not an opposition to the highest. And that's that's something about the Gnostics that um, several people had a problem with, was that they were too dualistic in taking it upon themselves to be the judgment. They split the world into two, whereas for the Orthodox current and also for Neoplatonism, the judgment doesn't belong to us. The judgment is out, is from outside. So therefore, we're never in a position where we can make that judgment and fracture the world into two and create this schism. That's why Gnosticism, Gnostics were often accused of being dualists, and they weren't all dualists. I think there was a lot of variety from school to school, uh, uh, you know, regarding this approach to the world and to the the value of matter. But it remains something that I can detect in Sun Ra. You know, at the end, the earth explodes, and that's a good thing. Right? Yeah. You know? It's a um, happy ending. It's a happy ending. In a way, it's kind of um, repeating what Kubrick does in Dr. Strangelove, uh, where it's done mm. without any real Gnostic overtones. But the idea is that, you know, you have Vera Lynn singing, we'll meet again as the world explodes. And we will, because 2001 is a sequel to Strange Strangelove. But anyways, like the- Whoa! You just <laughs> blew my mind. Well, we're back at the dawn, right? We go back to the beginning in 2001. So the world's done and we start again. And also Clockwork Orange takes place during 2001, if you pay close attention. Men spinning around the earth. Nobody cares about earthly things no more. He's referring oh, to, wow. to the Holy mission shit. that's going on. Yeah. Oh, God. But uh, the point being that you can see this kind of dualism, I find, in Space is the Place. And you've just kind of confirmed it. We were describing about Ra's kind of aversion to matter, to sex, to drugs. Um... He really did believe in a certain way that the, the goal was to leave, to get off this rock, to somehow attain a higher vibration, that there is a kind of dualism. In his talk that yeah. I listened to yesterday, he talks about God and the devil as as these two equal powers, and that you know you have to act in a certain way to please one of them in order to, to be yourself. It's kind of weird in a way. You kind of, like in Ra's vision, you have to serve either God or the devil in order to become yourself, or else you're just kind of a wayward joke. Um, But again, I just wanted to emphasize that dualistic um, Mm. vision. Mm. Um, So maybe there's something a little bit Manichaean about
1: Sun Ra's vision. I'm not saying that as a criticism, just an observation. Well, you know, and if you're listening to us at home, ladies and gentlemen, and thinking like, oh, there go Phil and JF again, reading, you know, the history of Western esotericism or like weird, philosophy and religion into some disposable piece of pop culture, Uh, maybe a lot of the time when we do that, what we're talking about is like resonances within a piece of pop culture with some kind of larger, deeper, older stratum of philosophy. But in this case, it's almost certainly very much more direct and causal. Sun Ra read all of the shit. He, you yeah. know, he knew the Gnostics. He knew the Manichees. Yeah. He knew the Hermeticists, the Neoplatonists. He knew all that stuff. Uh, he had a, a uh, comprehensive knowledge of the Western esoteric tradition.
0: And he also knew the objections to those movements. He deliberately chose this one... Way I mean, maybe it came in the revelation to him and he believed it was true, or maybe he was doing something more magician-like, which was uh, creating the story that he wanted the world to become. And um, maybe he was very much aware that he was creating. So the question is, why did he choose this narrative? Why did he choose this vision? And did his working work? I think that we should end on that eventually. but well, I that's think an that, interesting question. I think question. maybe he had a bigger
1: effect than we think. Um, yeah. I think he released some powerful magic. Ra's kind of magic is the purest, the most beneficent, the most wholesome kind, uh, because it was so generous. It was so selfless and, you know, in the nature of a gift, a completely free and gratuitous gift to people. And as much as he may have tried to chase off the squares... At the beginning of his lectures or at the beginning of his concerts or whatever, there's nevertheless this kind of great inclusivity of his vision, which is just like, if you can vibrate with me, then we can do something together. And if you can vibrate with me, I will create a column of vibrations that will lift you to a place where not only are you a pure being— But you're a truer being. You're in harmony with yourself and with the cosmos. This is sort of like, you know, what uh, Crowley calls, you know, doing your true will. Right. A kind of harmonization of the self with the universe. And for Crowley, this is the only kind of uh, a pure magic, a truly beneficent magic.
0: It's worth mentioning that, you know, despite uh, Plotinus and Tertullian's insistence that the Gnostics are fundamentally evil because they reject this world. And of course, both of them engaged in smear campaigns of trying to show how the Gnostics would do horrible things. Because a lot of Gnostic sects supposedly would engage in orgiastic practices and even violence and performing violence even cannibalism. on themselves, cannibalism, in order to purify, in order to expend all their sinfulness, to like spend it out. So you you do it in a ritual con you get rid of it, supposedly. Although you got to um,
1: figure that's mostly church propaganda.
0: Well, it's also Neoplatonic propaganda, but yeah, probably propaganda. But, you know, it's not like that shit's never happened before. So I don't see why we wouldn't consider the possibility that some t- cults were doing that. Sure. Maybe those cults were unfairly linked to the Gnostics. But <clears throat> I'm not a huge fan <laughs> of like the the kind of like Gnostics are good, you too, kind of thing going on. Like... Oh yeah, like, those like try, are the trying good trying to, those are the good Christians. The, the good guys yeah. and then the Orthodox Church was the bad guys and that kind of like black and white sillinesses. But having said that, I don't I don't I've never heard of a Gnostic you know, pogrom, or I've never heard of the Gnostic crusade, you know, the Gnostics (laughs) might have rejected this world, but they didn't, if they caused harm to themselves, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but they certainly didn't um, conquer and torture and punish those who didn't share their beliefs. Whereas the Orthodox churches and the classical world are both guilty, of course, of um, using their love for this world as justification for every kind of atrocity you can think of. So Mm, so maybe maybe dualism's not all that bad, you know? And you can see this yeah. with Sun Ra, is that he did no harm, you know, he was truly a kind of holy man.
1: I approach Ra as somebody that I want to teach in a class. So I teach a class called Music Since 1960, and I always want to work Sun Ra into there because I think he's a really important figure. And he is not often – I mean, certainly he has a following, and people know who he is and know he's important, but you seldom find him – being recruited to any kind of consensus narrative of recent music history, because he fits so weirdly in it. And part of it is simply just trying to approach students with an idea of who he was and what he's about. So like, okay, so you say, all right, for Monday, I want you all to watch Space is a Place, and then we'll talk about it. And then they come in on Monday having watched it, and they're like, whoa, what a weird dude. But you know what they assume is like that this is something like you know what George Clinton did with his spaceship that would come down from the rafters, kind of a, a gimmick, right? A routine, or you know, think of David Bowie and his Aladdin Sane persona or his uh, Ziggy Stardust persona or whatever. That's what they have in their mind. So they're going to look at Ra and they're going to be like, oh, it's a persona that he's putting on, and all of this jive about being a Saturnian and uh, trying to transmolecularize people to higher states of being and using music to create a bridge to the divine. So like, they're going to look at that and like, oh yeah, that's his bit. He's doing a bit. It's a routine. And I think the reason why it's hard for him to find a consensus place in music history is because it's hard for scholars, academics, to look at the role that he played, as, as you say, as a holy man and as a magician, can't ironize him like you can David Bowie.
0: There's yeah, a, exactly. No irony.
1: You can't ironize him. But irony is the only tool we have in our tool chest yeah. as educated secular moderns to understand what someone like Ra is doing. And so I have to kind of chip away at that. I mean, I don't tell students like, you're wrong, but I'll try and get them to consider. Okay. So if we use the wrestling term that I used in a recent Patreon extra that I wrote, he never broke kayfabe. Right. Kayfabe is um, the professional wrestling term for the pretense that the gimmicks and storylines that they come up with in a professional wrestling context, that those are real. Of course, they're not real, but the wrestlers have to be really good at keeping kayfabe. So they pretend in their social media posts and so on that they really hate that guy and they're going to kick that guy's ass and blah, blah, blah. That's kayfabe. But if... Ra's persona as a Saturnian, if the garb that he wore, the robes and the the headdresses, the mystical talk, if all of that stuff was kayfabe, then that is the most sustained kayfabe in recorded history, sustained from the end of the 50s to his death in 1992 or three, whenever it was he died in the 90s. Um, Almost half a century of kayfabe. And then my students pondering that will realize that if that's kayfabe, if that's a kind of a manufactured reality, there's no practical difference between a manufactured reality that is maintained without a moment's pause for 50 years. There's no difference between that and actual reality. No. And then you inevitably get people are being like, well, maybe he was mentally ill because only mentally ill people believe things like transmolecularization and higher states and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you have to kind of little bit by little bit try and get it so that people can understand the possibility that here is an artist whose mission is not even what we normally recognize as a possible artistic mission. You know, artists can be after any number of different things, but raising the dead from their graves, like in the Marseille Judgment Tarot card, that ain't one of them. It's not in our vocabulary. And so it can be very difficult to construct Ra's real place in 20th century, late 20th century arts.
0: It is. It is in a sense, but in another way, I would say that the aspiration to raise the dead is quite common in artists privately. Mm. I certainly see it in Van Gogh. I sense it in Shakespeare. I don't know. I see it in Dostoevsky. Is it kayfabe? You know, that's another thing. A doctor. Like nobody is at the molecular level a doctor. There are some people (laughs) who do certain things and they they become, they they are called a doctor. But I I actually worked in the healthcare center for a while as a writer, the communications guy. And I got to know a lot of doctors and they are great at kayfabe. They live their entire lives believing that they are doctors, some of them. Mm. Like they actually Mm. believe that on, at the atomic level, there's some kind of element in them. There's some molecule in them that says doctor on it, and they that. are that. And so I think the kayfabe is a lot more widespread than we think. Well, that's an interesting point, yeah. But but I, but I get your point. I mean, your point is that it wasn't a gimmick any more than any other persona in the union. sense is a gimmick. In, in a fact, sense, in it's fact, all in a In fact,
1: less, because Ra, if you ask him, who are you? He would answer the way he does in the film when, somebody, when the, some of the kids at the youth center ask him that. Yeah. He's like, I'm no one. I don't exist. I'm a myth. He's like, I'm just like you. Right.
0: Just like you. Yeah, exactly. He says, I come to you as the myth. There is no reality. I am the myth. That's right. And also his awareness of that makes it that everything is kayfabe. But when mm-hmm. you realize that, you achieve a kind of authenticity. Exactly. That's the whole trickster thing that we keep bringing up on the show. And the idea of the magician, the one who plays at what others work at. Mm -hmm. The the player, the fool, the joker.
1: Which brings us to the last card that's drawn. Right. So we were talking about that. So actually, there's another card that's played, which is the two of cops. The overseer pulls the two of cops, which has been redrawn to show two naked women. In fact, the two women who he's going to... uh, disport himself with, uh, this is the bit that Sun Ra did not approve of, the sexy bit. Yeah, um, And this just seems to continue the theme of the Overseer's investment in the world In right. the world of matter. Because
0: let us not forget that the Two of Cups is a, a kind of echo of the lovers, right?
1: Yeah. It's the love. Lover. Yeah, that's the, 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 that's the, lo- the canonic designation right. of it, love. So, yeah. so there's
0: the love card, which is a major trump, which shows two lovers there's the 2 of cups which shows which shows lovers. Uh, i think they're holding glass uh, cups they're holding yeah, four so. cups yeah. in the rider weight deck. and then there's the devil card who weirdly echoes the lover card because you see the yeah. devil and then you see the two lovers chained. so the devil is attached to this idea of carnal love. But also carnal love always implies duality and duplicity or, you know, mm-hmm. a splitting off into two. The Joker, however, is alone. The Joker wanders on his own. The Joker has, he kind of dances on the surface of the world. He's not invested in, in love and eros and all the stuff that keeps us bound and chained to this world. Yeah. He's free. So that, I think the symbolism is quite clear at that point.
1: Yeah. So that brings us to the last card that's drawn and it's Ra's card. And it's the one that eventually turns the tide for him. It is the thing that allows him to put on his concert. And the concert is the thing that allows him finally to consummate his plan or what he has wanted to do all along. But yeah. So you said you thought that was maybe a mistake that it's a joker from a playing card deck, not a tarot deck instead of the fool.
0: I don't think it was a mistake, but it's not a tarot deck. It's not a tarot card, yeah.
1: It's not, but then how would you interpret the appearance of a card from the the ordinary playing card deck instead of, why did why would he go with the Joker instead of the Fool?
0: I think it's because, <clears throat> and this is a disappointing answer perhaps, but I think it's because the word Fool uh, has certain connotations he didn't want to have in that particular scene. He wanted it to be clear that the Fool it means the Joker, which it does. I think that's no. why he chose that.
1: But maybe there's another reason. I think you're absolutely right. That's a negative reason. Why, why not choose the fool? I think there's a good reason for that, that it would be a bit confusing. But the positive side, why choose the Joker? Is that the Joker also, it has its own esoteric kind of vibration, its own meaning. You know, gambling is, uh, there's a great book by Jackson Lear's, on luck and chance, and the cultures of chance in America, I forget the name of the book, but um, he's we'll a great put it writer. In the show notes, he is, yeah. and it's a very intre- It's a very interesting book, but he talks about how gambling, like playing poker with an ordinary fifty-two card bicycle deck, is, from a certain point of view, certainly from a traditional religious point of view, a profane and unholy thing. Mm-hmm he wants us to consider that it's actually kind of a religious right, but a pagan one that even playing a game of poker is in a certain sense, a religious act. Yeah. And uh, therefore the 52 card playing deck, it's not the tarot and it isn't as, you know, spiritually significant or it doesn't have all of that spiritual symbology, but it still has its archetypal resonances in a kind of spirit world. And that within that Dak, the Joker has for one thing a practical meaning in, in certain games, certain versions of poker where jokers are wild, where a joker can become anything you want it to be or need it to be, right? It's the contingent, the unpredictable. It's something that goes from outside the system. This is true of The Fool as well, but it has a very particular set of resonances from within card playing, from oh, within yeah. like gambling games and the kind of materialist spirituality that attends card games that yeah. Lears is on about. Interesting. Uh, so that Joker appearing, it's like, you know, what does the overseer say? It's like, oh, that damn Joker. You know, he's like... I I thought I had this game locked down. Right. But there's always going to be something that escapes system.
0: Yeah. Which, I mean, that's the same function the fool plays in the tarot. The fool in the tarot plays the same role as the joker in the deck of cards. Yeah. And in fact, the the modern playing deck is the tarot. It's just not the whole tarot. It doesn't have the major trumps except for the fool. And it uh, has one less suit. Or it, no, it has not,
1: not suit, but like one less of the face card.
0: Suit. Yeah. Sorry. The court cards. Yeah. One less yeah. court card. Yeah. Other than that, I mean, whenever people are playing poker, they're playing with tarot cards, essentially. I would say that that Joker bit is a rift in the film that he, oh, they've been pulling tarot card. And all of a sudden he pulls a playing card and that's what he wins yeah. with. I find that very interesting.
1: That's in, yeah. That is interesting. I
0: don't know if it'll be interesting to our listeners, but it's interesting <laughs> to us.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I love that too because it's just sort of like uh, that's a, the spirituality of gambling is is the realization that chance really does rule everything. That it doesn't matter how tightly deterministic a system you've got. It doesn't matter how much you try to lock down the world. And in the world that we live in right now, this neoliberal world is pretty locked down. And this is a line that I've quoted on the show before from Frederick Jameson, who said, why is it that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism? I'm not necessarily saying that I, you know, I want the opposite of capitalism, some kind of revolutionary communism or, or anything like that. I'm just saying that I do, however, have that feeling that many of us do, that I'm living in a world that is locked down, in my despairing moments, they feel like, well, they did it. They finally figured it out. They figured out how to nail down everything so that every possible rebellion, every possible means of escape, they've already thought of it. They've already commodified it. They've already got plans to sell you your own rebellion back to you. They will always find a way so that every time you think you've escaped the prison, you find out you're just in another building on the prison grounds. And, and every time I reach that point of despair, and that is the, the despairing feeling that I think that line of Jameson's really captures, that feeling of being stuck in a system where finally the dreams of all of the tyrants and all of the archons, all of the demiurges from the dawn of time, that dream has finally been realized and we are in a world with no chance of escape and where nothing can ever change. What Philip K. Dick called the Black Iron Prison. Yeah, we are now fully locked in the Black Iron Prison. Um, The Joker is the dude that reminds you, nope. Nope. There's always, there is always going to be a glitch in the most perfect system. There's always going to be a break, a tear, a rift. There's always going to be a way out. And
0: remember that even though when you go to the casino, they take out the Jokers, right? Right. They yeah. always take out the jokers. Nobody of wants the do. joker, but every deck still comes with two jokers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they have to keep taking it out because the joker never dies. It keeps coming back. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.